This episode of The Rebooting Show is brought to you by House of Kaizen. In the spring, I participated in a workshop House of Kaizen hosted for a group of publishers looking to expand their subscription programs. And what emerged was that connecting subscriber journey stages with specific aspects of the audience experience is a powerful toolkit for subscription teams to focus on what is the biggest impact long-term. As Eric Helwig of Mozilla's Pocket said, House of Kaizen's framework was an incredibly helpful tool to align the entire organization on where we were hitting our marks and what areas needed attention. This workshop is now available on demand as a self-guided course or supplemented with one-to-one consultation as you see fit. To learn more, go to houseofkaizen.com. That is houseofkaizen.com slash rebooting. That is Kaizen, K-A-I-Z-E-N. Thanks, House of Kaizen. All right, Jasper Wang from Defector, thank you so much for joining me. Hot off a move. Yeah, it's been three years since I did your last podcast. I, know. I think I was one of your last guests. So I think you were. Uh, so I hope that doesn't happen for this one. That'll be an omen. But yeah, listen, because I think at the time it was totally different. This was in 2020. Defector started in 2020. And at the time with a very strange proposition. And the proposition that was people who were going to pay you for the content that you were creating. A bunch of people came over from the artist formerly known as Deadspin, now sort of Deadspin, but not really Deadspin, something else under Geo Media. All part of the drama over there, post-Gawker, the post-Gawker unwinding. And it was unusual. And I think now we're at a different like point where there is, it's almost like a consensus that if you're going to do high quality content, you're probably, it's not exclusively but you're going to probably have a direct revenue component that's a large part of the model. So just to level set, explain to those who are not super familiar with Defector what Defector is and what the model is. Yeah, so Defector launched in summer of 2020. We launched with 19 employees, uh, myself, and then 18 writers and editors who had all previously worked at Deadspin together. They had quit Deadspin in October of 2019 after disagreements with their new private equity ownership and the new installed leadership team. It was like a big labor story in 2019, just the folks saying F you to the boss. Yeah. And that was also Um, early, really ahead of a lot of, I mean, Gawker was one of the first properties to unionize. I remember when Gawker unionized, I was like, I was kind of shocked. I thought it was, I was like, unions, that's for like steel mills and stuff. That's from a different era. Totally. And there are people on staff who, in the very old Gawker way, they all like wrote what they were going to vote. And there are people on staff here who wrote about how they voted against the union. And I think, whatever, things live forever on the internet. They have many other bad takes (laughs) out there, but you know, I feel some level of regret on that. Yeah. Okay. So, but I mean, it was part of, to me, like almost like worker empowerment in some ways. I don't want to make like over-dramatize it as people at laptops, but Still, still, there is this feeling within, I know this from even part of it, there's always this feeling within news organizations of, we talk a lot about inequality, but there's inequality within it. And a lot of the times you don't have a lot of control in this last era. A lot of the people who are producing the journalism and the content were really not even asked. And like a lot of the people who were in charge of these organizations drove them off a cliff. Yeah, I mean, I I think many people would agree with that characterization. For us, we 
launched in summer of 2020, and it was very much envisioned as a worker cooperative, which it still is. We divided the equity of the company 19 ways, so some 5% in change to the original 19 founders. We had a very airtight operating agreement where, as an example, I could be fired with a two-third company vote. And so, yeah, that's always hanging over my head. And, and an array of other- You just got to um, peel off 34%, Jasper. It's fine. No, that's right. I always, I, I, it's a funny idea of like, if it went up for vote and I just barely survived, it's like, all right, well, see you all tomorrow. Well, we'll get back at it. I'm trying to think of my last job. There were probably a couple of moments I might, I might have fit that vote, but I think most times I would have been okay. Yeah, just barely. <laughs> yeah. And so we're still very much low hierarchy, very high information transparency, across um, the organization. We've grown to 25 people so far. And yeah, it's it's still very much in that ethos of worker ownership. On the revenue model side, that, that's all operating model stuff. Sure. On the revenue model side, as you alluded to, we are primarily subscription revenue driven. That is still the case. We're up to, we're at like 40,000 net active subscribers right now. We just came over our third annual renewal hurdle. So we were up by like 42, 42 and a half, and then had 20,000 people come up for renewal. So, so lost a handful there. So we're at about 40,000 paid subscribers in year one and year two. That represented like 95% of total company revenue. In year three, it's more like 85%, largely because we grew a hit podcast. And so diversified our revenue a little bit. But by and large, we're still a subscription-driven business. Yeah. And talk to me about the advantages and disadvantages of starting with subscription as the core driver, right? Because I think the advantages, not to just tell me, because I, I don't want to answer the question for you. Yeah. I mean, it's less the, the advantages than it is just like the moment that we started in 2020, what was the least risky and most immediate way to drive revenue. And you could imagine a world, and, and so Deadspin was a very successful property in the sort of old media version of the world with tens of millions of, of uniques a month. And so the bet there is like all of these writers and editors are bringing their audience. Many of them are, are hardcore readers. I mean, like myself, if, if I had not been involved with the company, I would have absolutely paid money to, to subscribe to a, a new company. And the technology was out there to run a relatively quick to, to set up paywall plus subscription management plus CMS. And that all seemed a lot easier than going down the ad model where we'd have to have the skill set of sales. We'd have to invest in the ad tech. We'd have to tr sort of drive towards scaled growth on page views and, and unique visitors. And I mean, Frankly, it was also just like I was going to be the person in the business seat. And <laughs> you're in like, a world let's which, get subs. I'm not yeah. doing lunch and learns nonstop. Yeah, I'm, I am personal. I mean, I'm, I'm bad at sales. I was bad at sales. I'm still bad at sales. And so it's just like the subscription revenue yeah. side just seemed like the no brainer to go down that path. And we were basically proven immediately correct. We announced on July 28th, 2020, and put up basically just a landing page for like pre purchased subscriptions. And we sold 10,000 subscriptions in 24 hours. So it's like, all right, there you go. That money's already in the bank. People paid annual subscriptions. Mm -hmm. Now we are basically immediately a, f a functioning small business. Yeah. But I think that the trade-off, right? Because I talk about trade-offs all the time because there's trade-offs in everything, right? And you talked about launching with 
but it was 19 of you or 20 of you? Yeah, 19 of us. 19. Yeah. And so you've added all of five people. So, I mean, in three years, I think the trade-off is that's slow growth, right? And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but like it really depends on what you want to build. Yeah. I mean, I think we're like pretty internally coherent as a business, right? So I think being worker owned, not taking any outside money, some people would describe it disparagingly as a lifestyle business. Well, I never understand why that's bad. That sounds like amazing. People sometimes yeah. are like, do you want to build a lifestyle business? I'm like, please. Like, I love it. Like, <laughs> so what? I have a great lifestyle and I also have a business. Like, that sounds actually pretty good. Yeah, right. And so for us, I, and, and that's not implying that like people don't work hard. I don't want anyone no. on staff to listen to this and say, oh, I'm not working hard. I myself, whatever. I work many fewer hours than when I was in professional services as a management consultant, but like I work a full day every day. But it's more about sort of like orientation towards growth and like benchmarks, I guess. For us, it's like, we grow the way we want to yeah. grow. We want to be subscription forward. We want, like, if you ask everybody, would you like 10% more salary next year? Everybody would say yes. And, but like, if you said, would you like 100% more salary? People would probably say, what's the catch, right? <laughs> what have we had to do in order to make that work for yeah. ourselves? And so I think just without that sort of framework, the venture backed outside money framework of hitting your marks quarter after quarter, like we just take into consideration, like, what do we want this site to be? I don't want to be moralistic about it, but like there's sort of an aesthetic interest in, oh, like we run a site that doesn't have ads on it. Like, again, it's not moralizing, but it is like, oh, if you ask most writers out there, they probably be like, oh, it's pretty to run a site like that. Right. Yeah. Or we don't have to like onboard new ad people. We don't have to onboard new sponsors. Like we, it's just like not a part of the business. It's a lucrative business if you can do it well, but like, it's just not what we want to do. Yeah. And again, it goes to trade-offs and I, I know this from my own experience, even my current experience, sometimes operating a publishing business is, it's always hard, but it also gets really complicated. And sometimes you're like, you're talking about everything other than what is technically your product, right? Like, I mean, I remember at my last like company, our, I remember taking aside the CEO, I'm like, our company meetings have nothing to do with what technically our product is like it has everything to do with everything around what we claim that the core purpose of the company is and it, it sends a weird message because if you're focusing on and mostly it's because it's really difficult to run an advertising business it's really difficult to run an events business it's really difficult to do run a commerce all these things i feel like in the, particularly in the last generation added up to really stretch a lot of these organizations in so many different directions and in some ways not all the time but in some ways take their eye off why do we exist and i think this is a good time for every single publisher brand not people deserve to exist but like is to question why you have a right to exist as a brand yeah and i think part of it for us is also because we're a small team because even at 25 people now, it's just me and one other full-time business person. Because we are worker-owned, all of our decisions, like I don't make any decisions unilaterally that are big moves without a lot of people whose day jobs are to the editorial side. And so that ends up, to your point of sort of losing sight of what we're actually doing here, like we just never lose sight of that. And part of it, the trade-off is like my time as a business person, am I taking my eyes off of 
the subscription business in order to focus on advertising, it's also them taking their eyes off the boat. Like we have an engagement editor who does all of the newsletters and does all of the social media posts, as well as being a blogger and an editor. And we've talked about doing more newsletter ads. We've been approached by ad bundlers, wholesalers, however you want to describe them and said, do you want a more regular stream of advertising there? And that discussion is like, it would be nice to grow those muscles and feel like we are dabbling more in ads and generating that revenue. On the other hand, it's like, that's just like a whole nother process that has to be in place of like managing creative assets coming in, managing additional relationships with the the vendors and the brands. And just like, is it the time for like, if we had the bandwidth across the team, it's like, yeah, of course you tackle that. But like, no, we're operating with a limited team very much on purpose. And it's not quite the right time. Okay. So you're basically talking about under 10% growth. And I think that's like normal. You, you have hyper growth early on. Every brand does. And then it becomes a bit of a slog. And talk to me about that. Is, is that sort of where you've seen you hit an inflection point and then it's hard yards time? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a case where each incremental subscription is harder to convert than the last one. I think for us, we really saw weakness in the business for the first time earlier in 2023. We saw about 10% higher churn on our annual subscribers for the first half of the year. That was a little bit mysterious, sort of unexplained. And I asked around to other people running subscription businesses and they had were seeing similar things. In fact, some of them had seen it in maybe a full year earlier. And we never got to a good answer on what that necessarily was. Like some combination of subscription fatigue, macroeconomic climate, making people feel more insecure and in how they were spending their discretionary budgets, layoffs, hitting industries where we know we have a lot of subscribers, all of that could add up. And similarly, we pulled a lot of levers. We like tried stuff to bring people back and we've sort of stabilized the business at, at this point. Again, we just went through our September renewal period when 20,000 annual subscribers roughly come up for renewal. And we came out of that at about 90% retention, which is the high end of, of what we were hoping for. And then October, similarly, it sort of come back to the, the level of churn and retention that we had been seeing historically. But we like we pulled a bunch of levers. We mm-hmm. Im- improved our engagement drip for early subscribers. We ran our second sale ever. So $1 for your first mm-hmm. month, and then you convert to, to full price. And that was very successful. We timed that against NFL season coming back. So it was just a good place in the calendar for people to be thinking about sports and spending money against it. So we're in a good spot going forward. But if you sort of ask me to say what percentage of that difficulty this year was due to X or Y factor and how do we resolve it? I don't really know. And it feels like a very hard fought single digit growth in subscribers. Like we're much more sophisticated than we were one year ago but it was much less efficient versus the previous year where it was like relatively unsophisticated, but still growing with much more ease. Right. And I think that's the normal, every subscription program, I feel like goes to this period where you're really about converting the, I don't want to say the low hanging fruit, that's a terrible cliche, but you're converting the people who you think you can get, right? I mean, every brand has that number and you guys started off with 
a lot of people because the people who made up Defector had followings that they brought over with them. And then it becomes harder. It just that's just every brand goes through that. I think that's a normal evolution and maturation of these kind of programs. Yeah. In some ways, the change from the easy times to the harder times for us might be even more acute because we started with sort of like the previous website falling apart for largely non-economic reasons. So the first year was very much about how do we get in front of the people who already know our deal and who already know the editorial voice and who have been sort of waiting around, hoping that something like this would emerge versus at this point, it's like, okay, we've converted those people, the people who were previously Deadspin readers are are probably aware of Defector. And if they're going to pay, they're going to pay. And now we're like every other subscription business of you have to get that first touch point and they learn about the brand and they have to come back a second time and see, oh, they have, it wasn't just a one-off. And then slowly but surely they give you their email address and they read your promotional emails and eventually they give you money. And it's just like a much, it is that like that, that more traditional subscription story of like teaching the the reader about exactly who you are versus previously there was a brand identity. There was an editorial voice. There was just, it was just like, oh, it's that thing. You could just point at this other thing and say, that's what we are now. I guess we don't really think about scale. Yeah, Like it's not a word that we really use. No, I, I, I know guess you the way don't I would use it. But I guess what I'm trying to get at, let's go beyond the scale because that's like a pejorative. I actually think I have a, okay. a way to answer this, which is we got to, we went like 10,000 subscribers, 20,000 subscribers, 30,000 subscribers, like super easy, like months of running the business. It's like just uptick and yeah, we hit the next round number. And then fighting from 30 to 40,000 was like years of work, right? And so there was a moment back in the early days when people were like, oh man, in two years from now, when we're like 100,000 subscribers, it's going to be wild. We're going to conquer the world or whatever. But I think everybody has like just understood to your point. It's just like the easy days. We launched at an exact moment where in the business, it was just easy to grow subscribers. And so now it's like, you just have to fight each extra hundred subscribers is harder than your previous yeah. hundred subscribers. And you just have to like plan around that. Like it's building new muscles. It's getting more sophisticated in your engagement and your targeting. It's diversifying revenue a little bit more. And it's certainly not taking on costs that are going to look bad in a year, two years down the line, if you can only grow at five, 10% the next couple of years. So for us, the conservatism to not get out ahead of it is already built into the, the yeah. operating model. And like, so it's easy enough for us to just slow and steady. Again, lifestyle business. Yeah. So let me ask you this, like maybe not, I don't know if it's an uncomfortable question, but like, what is it like being partners with like 18 journalists? Because like at the end of the day, like I always say, like there's some great like quote unquote entrepreneur, I hate the word entrepreneur, but like entrepreneurial, like journalists and stuff like this. But the reality is the thing that makes the best journalist really works against you when it comes to building a business in some ways, because you're trained, you constantly have people trying to massage you. There's constant bullshit around. The core features is skepticism and it can like newsrooms can be like kind of cynical places, to be honest with you. 
And when you're starting something new, there's a lot of unknowns. And it sounds like you guys, I think the fact that you're cons- small C conservative is kind of indicative of the, the structure of the business to some degree. Cause I just don't think that journalists are naturally of the, I mean, we saw already that the entrepreneurialism can quickly move into like snake oil salesmen and even like fraudulent activity. I mean, SBF is like next to me getting arranged. I mean, by and large, it has been terrific. And, and part of that is like, it's, it's not just any group of journalists. What I say is terrific. I think there's a couple of things going for us here for this group is like most of them basically took a blood oath when they quit on each other's behalf. Right. And so I think there's sort of like a, a bonded trust there that is a good place to grow from and have occasional tough discussions. For me, my background, I was a management consultant at Bain and Company for a decade and being in consulting, you never actually get to make your own decision. And so now, even though like I lead the business, I still come to it with a very like, let's try to get as many people bought in as possible. Like, how do we think about influencing one another and not just like dictating what the next steps are and then banging your head against the wall? There are definitely moments where I come out of a meeting and I'm like, God, I really thought that decision was going to take five minutes for everybody to sign off on. And we freaking talked about it in circles for for two hours. And w- was that really necessary? But yeah, by and large, I think I, I don't want to pretend like everybody on staff is like super fluent in the mechanics of the business and yeah. just like have all the right intuitions about where to grow and where to pull back. I think there are some people on staff where I was like, had I, had you gone to business school as a 24 year old, like you would be an incredible business person. And so I lean on you for that sort of, there are other folks where it's like by interest or by natural skill set, like that's not you, but that's okay. Like operating a business is not just like strategy of where to go. A lot of it is like nitty gritty, just keeping it running. And so everybody can, you know, find their place in, in providing. Yeah. So talk to me about keeping a very lean infrastructure because i think one of the necessities of a lot of modern publishing businesses is the need to be very selective in how much infrastructure you take on right i mean you guys partnered with lead i think for the i don't know if you still are with the launch but talk to me how you think that through because look a lot of publishing companies added a lot of infrastructure costs. Anyone who's been inside a lot of publishing businesses, the people who are creating the the content are a minority of the people. When I think about infrastructure, it is not just, it's not factories. It's that the reality of media businesses, it's people because you're doing a ton of different things. And particularly when you're chasing incremental revenue everywhere it, it is, you can start to have pretty sprawling infrastructure. Yeah, for us, it is we outsource as much as we possibly can. Again, we're 25 people, we're two business people. And a lot of that, me being the one of the two business people, is just managing outside vendors who we pay hourly or in some cases by retainer, in some cases a percentage of revenue. So if I run down the list of vendors, yes, we're still with Lead by Ali. When we launched, they were using Pico as the plugin for um, paywall and subscription management. They have since cut Pico out of their platform. Pico now is called. Yeah. Well, they pivoted into like creator stuff, yes. right? They, they work with influencers now. It's yeah. not our deal. Our tech is fully controlled by lead. They're built on top of Stripe. So that's a technical part of it. Oh, it's a WordPress site fundamentally. So that's yeah. a CMS we work in. And then everything else, like I have 
outside HR partners. I have outside accountants and bookkeepers. I have an outside general counsel. I have an outside podcast lawyer. We have an outside trademark lawyer. We have an outside media, like First Amendment rights lawyer. We have agents at UTA who do some of our negotiating on the podcast side. I just signed a contract for Amuse Labs to run crosswords. It's a plugin to run crosswords on WordPress. A lot of this stuff, yeah. like at some point, could you have argued for hiring in-house? Maybe some people make that choice, but for us, it's just like, I'd rather, a fun argument I, I end up in every year when we release an annual report about our business. Yeah, which I love, by num- the way. I wish every company did that. Anyone who's listening who tells me that they can't tell me something, I'm going to point them to Defector. They tell you everything. I mean, there's no secret. No. There's no secret. Like, we can't say that. I'm like, says who? I was like, you run the company, started the company. It's a private company. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. For for me, it's like everybody at the company already knows. I, maybe that's it. Is that like internally, not everybody knows. For us, it's like okay. internally, everybody knows. I'm just hitting publish one extra place. And so everybody, everybody knows. But one yeah. one argument I end up getting in is people will email me and say, you guys spend too much on tech. And we pay lead a, a percentage of Yeah, a, I think that. I think, you know, no offense to Austin and Allie and all that. They received my partners at Digiday. They built our site. Yeah, I mean, and they're great. And I think part of it is, there, there is a part of this that is just like, they took a chance on us. They made a bet. Like, the bet is paying out. We are grateful that they took a chance on us. And therefore, we do not begrudge them the revenue that is contractually theirs. But I think the other part is people will email and be like, well, if you move to Ghost and then you started just do, doing some of the setup, I'm like, no, 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 no. When we no. say we have no technical people in-house, you just, you're not listening to me. I'm saying we do not have anybody who keeps an eye on technical infrastructure. We don't have any design resources in-house. Like we, we don't have any product people. My, the other business guy is a data scientist and he works with a lead in Austin on dashboarding and the sort of products on data that other lead customers can use, but like, that's it. And so for me to just be able to say like, we don't do any of that, like I'm happy to premium for that. And by the way, it's also like competitive with, with like a substack. Right. But you also, you pay a premium and really it depends on the model. Like, right. So if you're going to keep a super lean model, you're going to pay a premium for that flexibility. Right. And the way I understand your deal, like not to talk leads book, but like, it's incentivized with, and there's good and bad, but that's same with the Substack model in some ways, in that like it's incentivized with your growth of the the core business, right? Of the subscriptions, right? So I think that provides flexibility. Now, some people would look at it and they would say, you're spending too much. You could just do flat. You could do ghosts. You could do whatever. And then you can, and it's like, I don't want to do this because like that would require us adding more people. And like, I would see this all the time. We would add a piece of technology, but guess what? That takes people to operate the technology. They have to learn the entire system. Now it's like another FTE. And so there's a lot of advantages to, particularly when you're trying to stay very lean on infrastructure to outsourcing and with outsourcing, you might pay a premium, but you don't have to think about it and you have experts. That's exactly right. And I think for us, there's also the extra complexity of like everybody on staff is a co-owner in the business. And so, but you know, part of it, a part of us only adding a couple of people a year is like, yes, we were very conservative with how our cash comes in and what financial commitments we're making in future years. Part of it is also just like making sure this is a person who we want to bring on as a co-owner. And it's a lot easier when most people's jobs look 
roughly the same. Like you're a writer, you're an editor, everybody understands what you're doing. They can see how you pull your weight. They can see how you contribute. Yeah. If we have just the more people you tack on where it's like your job is a little bit opaque to most of the people on staff. And how do we make sure that you are being a good co-owner? Like it just adds extra complexity yeah. there in a way that maybe other companies don't see. So it, so everyone is a co-owner. This isn't like a law firm where you have partners and then you have others. Yes. My first job was for a partnership and I was not a partner, obviously. <laughs> And the guy who was running it meant well with having us all in the partnership meetings, but it was like very awkward because they would discuss overhead costs and like I was. Right. And I'm like, I'm being discussed along with the furniture. Maybe I don't need to come to these meetings. Yes. For us, every single person, including new people who join are owners and we've like written it. So I'm getting into a lot of the, the nitty gritty here, but when yeah, we I talk about it. ownership of a, of a business, right, we're usually talking about three things. We're talking about voting rights. We're talking about rights to profits. And then we're talking, and we're talking about three in a liquidation event. Do you get to participate in the, the residual value? So for us, voting rights, our operating agreement has basically enshrined that most of the voting rights go with employees, current employees. So if you leave, you still have your equity for a liquidation event, but like you, you don't get the vote. So we have that on profit share. It's the same thing. We distribute profit share to employees. It's on an employee level. It's on an owner level. And then finally, we we do give everybody some amount of equity so that in a far-fetched world in which we are have a, some liquidation event, everybody does get to participate. And so even if we like change that, even if we didn't give everybody equity voting rights, we've already said like you get profit share and you get voting rights. So it just is like, it's very flat. It's very transparent. It leads to similarly awkward conversations when everybody has to hear and understand how the business is operating. But I think probably that is better than the version you're talking about where your overhead like furniture, as opposed to we're, like, we're all sort of on equal footing here yeah. and talking through it together. Look, there's no perfect model. And I think during the craziness of the, uh, the very brief Web3 time, I was very drawn to the idea of like DAOs. And I, not from mm -hmm. like a technical perspective or because it was all crypto red pilled or whatever, but mostly because the corporation is very imperfect organization and the capital versus worker dynamic is fraught in, in capitalism. And I think going back to like Butsim, there's always been efforts to try to remake how we organize as a group of humans to make it more fair and more equal then inevitably capital is, and I think that's probably why in some ways why everyone wanted to leave a private equity run publishing company because anyone who's been in one of those you're like what do we do for who for what like really like just because somebody who has no idea about this business has no stake in this product it needs i don't know like an extension of their hamptons house we we've got to do this like why right yeah i, I think i would always find this honestly like even with like my own like team at the other I was like, well, we've got to grow this. And they're like, I sometimes get particularly younger employees who don't like, they're like, why? But why do we have to grow? Like, we're profitable. We're growing. Like, why do we have to, why do we have to grow more? What explain that? Why? And I'm like, well, you know, we have to. <laughs> You'll get it when you're older. <laughs> Can we change the subject? <laughs> I'll give you a very concrete example. A concrete example of me as, as executive, as labor and as shareholder on how you consider all of those factors in. Our refund policy at Defector is very generous, 
Like we send you the 30 day renewal notice when your annual subscription comes up. But if you, if we charge you in 30 days and you write in and you say, I didn't want to be charged this, we'll just give you the money back. And that consideration, right? Like at, at any number of publications, it's not that easy. You got to jump through hoops. You got to yell at a lot of people to get your money back. Try to cancel the Wall Street Journal. The thing is, I am. Good luck. Right. The thing is, I am one of those people who has to get yelled at, right? Like there's only two business people. I am in the customer service inbox. If you send an angry email, I read that and then I have to fight you on it. And so we talked about it. We talked about as a company, like how generous do we want to be on this? And part of that consideration, in addition to what does it look like to the customer and the financial impact is like, like somebody has to triage those emails and like make a decision. And so just take it out of our hands, just like give the refund. And then we're sort of done with that. And so would I rather have an extra thousand dollars in my pocket? And, but have to answer a hundred angry emails. I probably wouldn't. So it's, that, also, that's a it's, sort of it's another trade off. Like when, cause I think a lot of times, particularly small organizations, they get into subscriptions or memberships. They don't recognize that like the trade off of like having like many thousands of customers is you have many thousands of people who are going to forget their password. They're going to forget how to spell their names sometimes. And they're going to come to you because they can't spell their name. Yes, that's exactly right. That That is like the one of the first things I say when we talk to <laughs> groups of journalists who are thinking about their doing their own thing. It's like, yes, yeah, so let me talk to you about like paywalls and subscription strategies, but like, do you have a customer service inbox set up? Because one way or another, the complaints are going to get to you and you better have a good process for managing that and directing people in there. Yeah. I mean, it's something that people don't like I, I feel like don't think about enough like before they get into it because like more customers more problems and it's again it's just a trade-off it's a good problem to have that's <laughs> better than nobody no customers no no nobody forgetting their name how to spell their name but i mean we had one guy from amazon he couldn't spell amazon he couldn't spell his name and we had to solve the problem every single time so All right, cool. Let's leave it there. Really appreciate you taking the time, Jasper. It's always good to catch up. And I love what what Defector is doing. And hopefully more people will try these new models that are more worker owned. And even if they don't like become like massive, that's okay. Yeah, I think we've been very blessed with a pretty successful, smooth journey so far. But if all that happened was we did it for a year and we paid ourselves a little bit of salary and we tried a thing like that would have been very noble, too. And I think I I think it's totally right. Like it's a healthier ecosystem of people are willing to go out there and try and, and potentially fail. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you so much, Jasper. Thanks, Brian. Great talk. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Jay Sparks for producing The Rebooting Show. If you have a podcast that you're considering making, you should check out Pod Help Us and what Jay can do for you. Go to podhelp.us. 